0: Are we talking about the Chinese people or the Chinese government because the Chinese government might uh, you know want to keep building this china African relationship because they realize what they get from it but the Chinese people do not understand the whole point of this uh, Chinese African uh,
1: relationship from my own perspective I think this would be a storm in a pickup. a storm in the pickup in the fact that the relationship between China and Africa right now is uh, the hand that gives and the hand that receives relationship.
2: Um, what I also think is that you're going to have more people getting rich, right, out of these measures and more people getting poor.
3: With narratives surrounding COVID-19 constantly changing, racist incidents towards Africans in the Chinese city of Guangzhou seems to be history soft power politics, China seems to be ahead on the continent. Is Africa in a position to review its relationship with China? Here in the United Kingdom, what they call small businesses remain the subject of heated debates in Africa. The so-called informal sector broadly remain in phrases, shadow economy, black economy, and reported economy. It is estimated that Such economies will be hit the most by the COVID 19. Are there policies in place to remedy the so called informal sector in Africa? This is part two of the special podcast, The Two East Africans and the Chadian. We connect with special guests from Kampala in Uganda, Banjul in Gambia, and Makeni in Sierra Leone. Let's continue with the conversation. I would like to start here in the United Kingdom. Let me start with Kwame, who owns an entertainment venue in Dalston, a trendy but now quiet suburb of London. Small businesses in many African countries are known in policy and academic circles as informal business, informal sector, or informal economy. So Kwame, tell us, how is COVID-19 affecting your business Or if you can go ahead and tell us how you think COVID-19 is going to affect African businesses in the context of Kenya.
0: Uh, On the one hand, in the UK, it's sort of, I mean, it's very difficult for most businesses, uh, but the government is offering uh, help. So we've got this, um, there's a loan that's been made available, even though that's been very slow to come through. Uh, They're not uh, proper, there's no proper structure of how that, is going to be accessed that loan is still a loan uh, being offered by banks so banks will still ask for the usual things that they ask for security they'd look at your credit rating so that's not great as well that means that um, people will be coming out of this situation with a debt so there's no business in their right mind that would want to uh, take on a debt when we don't even know when we'll reopen luckily we've got the this follow scheme so that's helping That's where um the revenue will uh, give a percentage of um uh, the money that we pay our staff so that's there and there's also a grant that is coming through the local councils that will be given to any business that pays what's called business rates in this country something akin to a, a tax now when you go when it goes to African countries, I think by nature as uh, we were talking about this before the pro uh, this recording started, uh, a lot of these countries have a, a highly informal sector and I do appreciate that that would make it very diff- uh, difficult for most uh, countries because even if they wanted to help these businesses, how do you gauge how much help you can give um the informal sector so i think in uh in african countries what might make sense outside established businesses is perhaps um giving uh tax breaks a lot of people that sell their wares in markets they have to pay taxes to the local council market trading tax that sort of thing i think after this to make it easier for traders to come into business uh tax breaks would probably make a lot of sense in. Um, various African countries.
3: Thank you, Kwame, for that. Uh, with us, we on the call. is uh, a social policy expert. We'll get to him before we do that. Let me speak to our guests, who are also uh, live with us from McKinney and in Syria and Kampala in Uganda. But first from Papa, who is a journalist in Syria and Tell us, how is small businesses coping with the lockdown?
4: But the situation here right now, is very much hard, especially for the poorest of the poor, you know, who definitely, you know, rely on, you know, the you you the the day to day you have to go to the market because being that public gathering has been prohibited, you know, even my my aunt used to go to public to 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 the public market. There is a, a, a market that we call in Lumo here, yeah? and of course this is a day. When all business people gather in one place, you know, and people from the remote villages, they bring in their goods, you know, into that, and they buy and eat. But for now, all that has been cancelled. And government actually, at this point in time, is not talking anything about uh, providing for these people, you know, g- g- making provision for these people, not at all. Even though some other organizations, and of course, they are recommending that for us to have a two weeks nationwide, at lockdown, but government, I'm not sure they they want to venture that because if they venture that, I don't want to predict what will happen because for people who definitely cannot afford, the beggars, the disabled, you know, people who are living in the slums like our city in Freetown is 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 very much congested. You know, you have slums all over the place. So these people, they cannot afford to go indoors. Already they are living in populated places. So getting them in quarantine or you know locking them down for two weeks would just create more problem for me, I think. And that is why the government itself does not want to venture that, that, that as at now. So all what they are doing now is to continue strengthening the inter-district partial lockdown which also has its own impact on the poorest of the poor which i am more concerned about because these are people can never tell you about savings a whole lot of them they will never tell you about bank accounts they never had it they don't know what is account you go to the market today you sell and buy what you eat today so if you're restricted not to do that definitely it's a problem and more when cases are coming up again in the provinces now we have had cases in bombali in kenima in Tonkolili and put local. Four provincial districts have recorded cases, so it's in more
3: kind of lost him there, but let's go to Kampala. So, Richard, what's the situation for those earning on a daily basis, but no savings?
5: <laughs> yes. uh, Thank you, Eric, for inviting me to the podcast. Really appreciate this. Uh, you know, majority of people in this economy, their jobs are either, you know, hand-to-mouth, so they are not making money to sustain them in this kind of situation. So, yes, I think the biggest uh, issue here when you talk to people is that they are not sure what's happening next and uh, they don't know when to get their next move in terms of uh, how, you know, making their
3: living. That's a big problem we have here now. Now let's go to Banjo in Gambia. Omar, you've worked as a social policy analyst for a long time. The informal sector has been here for centuries before it gained the currency in the 1970s. What are governments doing with those businesses that are regarded as informal? The data we have shows now that they will be the most hit by these lockdown measures.
1: Um, thank you, uh, um, Eric, for that. I think you've touched on the core of uh, um what is wrong mainly in the African policy sphere, including uh, most of the discourse around it it's about just um uh, I always argue that policy is a science it 's not an art one doesn't just see something being implemented in one place and just copy it because it worked and it's just like when one walks into a a, a, a gallery, it's not just to just pick the most beautiful painting that you see there and buy it and just move forward. Policy is much more need-driven. Uh, it's not it's not uh, decorational. One has to look for policies are put in place. Um, maybe one has to go back to even the definition of what a policy is. It's a statement of intent. And intent for what? You have to bring in a policy to address an existing problem or try to improve an existing situation.
3: But if and I, I, am, if I, if I ask you again, let me ask you again. Yes, I understand that policy take a process, but we have yes. had the informal sector. If I have to repeat, since nineteen 19- yes. twenty four, and yes. uh, the governments are still in this COVID nineteen. The governments are still to come with a specific approach on how they are going to deal with compensating those who are not able to work in this so-called informal sector. So, um, since 1990, 1974, what is there in place to deal with this informal sector?
1: Thanks, I was trying to get to that in terms of um, that is what is wrong with the informal sector in Africa, in Africa is the asymptomatic uh, policy Issues that we have, where we just copy policies for the sake of policies, and we try to bring policies so that we can report and try to have country comparisons. Mm. And this issue of having um, an informal sector, calling small and medium size uh, size uh, uh, enterprises as well as uh, um, individually owned businesses, small scale such as petty trading. Because in Africa, that is what we call the informal sector, and those are the engines of economic growth in most countries in the world, developed or not developed. Because they are your useful butcher, they are your useful grocery store, your your tailor. These are the sector. This is the sector that forms the bonds that we have in our communities, and to just. Paint them with a wide brush of informal sector, diminishes them to, uh, to a small space, which is often looked as a, as a problematic one. And I think, again, um, what I always argue in terms of why do we have to call them informal sectors? Informal means that there's a lot of loose ends that we are unable to tie. But again, it comes to this contract between citizens and governments. If the government finds a way to tax these so-called informal sectors um, not just one type of tax in most countries including where i live right now in the gambia um, you you would have like a uh, local council tax uh, central government tax you would have even community taxes being all collected some of them uh even collected on a daily basis so it means that government can know who these businesses are government knows who these people are government knows where they are and where they can find them on a daily basis so to, to basically just brand them informal i think instead sort of the government washing their hands of them when it comes to providing a service to them but when it's time for governments to collect taxes and raise revenue from them they know how to find them and again bringing this to the topic Your discourse, my argument would be that we we cannot just paint them as informal sector uh, uh, because for something to be informal, it has to be disorganized on a lot of of fronts. And most of these businesses called informal, they have business registrations, the government have the business registrations, they have their taxpayer, ideas and so on so for me um the solution to this um informal sectors in this COVID 19 is the government can take this as an opportunity to try to formalize them i hate to use use the word but i think since they've been informalized involuntarily for so long i think this is an opportunity to say that we 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 know how to find you to collect tax if we have some relief packages for you, we will find you using the same channels.
3: To be fair, some countries in East Africa are distributing relief to the poorest. Not sure how they determine who needs what and when, but what are the measures that are being taken in some of the West African countries?
2: Is it me? Is it the question for me?
3: Yeah, you can okay. comment. Okay. And then I'll go yeah,
2: through. I was saying, Um, what I also think is that you're going to have more people getting rich, right? Out of these measures and more people getting poor. Mm -hmm. So if you think of what, uh, if you go back to chat, the kind of measures that have been being implemented, for example, you think of money, the government buying cereals and trying to distribute to the poorest. Mm -hmm. But guess who is doing the distribution of this food, right? So this food is being distributed by the foundation of the first lady. So what it means is that money is getting out of um, public money is getting out and then is going right in the hands of the first lady. So, and that's only a situation, but I mean, many other organizations are taking profit of um, these measures being implemented by governments. So more uh, embezzlement isn't going away, obviously. So it means uh, all our problems, uh, coronavirus is exposing them, but it also... Uh, it reinforcing the, the one that you already have, like corruption, in money embezzlement, and still, yeah, I think uh, we, we're still in the. And we're not going to learn any lessons. That's my, that's my huge concern. Like, when this will be gone, there will be no lesson learned. Like, at least when you'll see it from the perspective of Western countries, even now, people are already asking for why Boris Johnson, like, for example, here in the UK, why. Why Boris Johnson didn't decide a nary lockdown. So, at least there is accountability on the measures being taken. But when you look at our countries, I don't believe that when this thing is gone away, anyone is going to be sitting and say, All right, this is over. What did we learn from what happened? And so, that's uh, what is really concerning and dramatic about African countries. Like I just mentioned what uh, Al-Fakunde was saying, you couldn't believe a, a head of state which has faced um, Ebola coming on television and telling people to go and drink hot water to get coronavirus away. That's irresponsible. And I think this is what you're going to see more in African countries. And that's what is the spirit, uh, really makes us pessimistic about our leaders in Africa, really.
3: We are towards the end of this podcast, but let's look at the international relations side of the COVID-19. It's almost a month since the Guangzhou racism incident. No more Chinese racism talk. Has China sorted out the racism problem? Let me start with you, Richard. Uh, no, from from what we're seeing on the news and from what we're seeing in the social
5: media, I don't think they have sorted out anything. Uh, so we have this tendency of uh, our politicians have now resulted to clickivism, where they just tweet and no action. So well, I, I don't I, I don't think there is there, there is that solid action that's been taken because uh, every day uh, we, we you read in the news, uh, you read in the paper, you talk to people who have relatives or. Their children in China, and they are saying that the situation hasn't changed. So uh, I think something really uh, Africa has now to come as one, not just because Nigeria has more uh, uh, more of its citizens in China should uh, should be the one pushing. I think Africa we should just start cooperating on this, and we go there as one block and negotiate, or we we set up strong terms on on how we we want these things to, to, be, to be solved. And the way we want it to be solved, we want it to be solved in the way that how our people are treated should be in a humane way and in a way the, the same way we treat their people here. We, we don't treat their people uh, by discouraging them to do you know normal no things an individual would want to do on a daily basis. So I think uh, human rights have to play a role here and uh, our leaders shouldn't just try and uh, sweep this under the carpet, uh, based on the fact that China does support us in, uh, financially and also through uh, other forms of development. That shouldn't be a reason to treat our people like that. I think uh, we have to be very strict on, on this as, as, as a continent. Because uh, as you see, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a change in the world order. And for Africa as a continent, we need to assert our place in that.
3: Let's go back to Omar Jado in Banju. In a social policy and diplomatic perspective, what's your view on the China-African relationship?
1: Thank you, Eric. Um, I think Richard has made a very good point on that relationship fears that there would be more, more traction in the debate and post-COVID Africa's relationship with China would be a little bit different. People would be a little more uh, cautious and there might be a bit of uh, tax when um, uh, business and foreign relations are in place. But on the other hand, I see it from a different perspective. I see it from a high-level policy perspective mm. as in trying to define the relationship between Africa and China. And it's kind of unfair to compare, to try to define the relationship between one country to a whole continent. Mm. Usually in diplomacy, it's one country dealing with another, uh, a bilateral or multilateral uh, relationship. But I think therein lies our biggest problem where Africa is being treated as a country mm. ra- 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 rather than a continent with countries that have different uh, political system, different social structures and different development development agendas. Mm. Again, I think that the relationship between Africa and China has not evolved because it's still the relationship about the hand that gives and the hand that receives mm-hmm. and usually the hand that gives guides the hand that the hand that the hand that receives mm-hmm. so i don't see more changing because at the end of the day um a lot of these high level policymakers are the ones that guide the narrative that decide what would happen next and a lot of them um in in power right now um Having a much more strained, having even a slightly strained uh, relationship with China, can translate to that road that they promised to people in a particular part of their country not being built because that country was uh, promised to be built during their time in power, not from government funds but from uh, donations from from uh, other countries and china right now is a big, big big partner in that so i i honestly don't see a lot changing even so maybe because of china's uh projected strain and difficult relationship with uh, western countries african countries might even cozy up to china even more so i think from a grassroots perspective there would be a lot of noise there would be a lot of Uh, traction and you might see the odd case here where civilians or citizens uh, go a certain way to say things or even go as far as doing things but I think from a policy perspective and if you look at the context of Africa what matters is where governments matter more than in most parts of the world so from a personal perspective, I think that China's relationship with Africa is still defined by what China can do for Africa, rather than a mutual relationship. And as a result, even if China um, comes out with a stained, um a, a reputation during this COVID, it would not have have much impact on their business and their diplomacy with Africa, simply because the higher the hand that gives, guides, the hand uh, receives.
3: And what is your view, Kwame?
0: Um, I think the first bit is I'll say I agree with uh, Omar. I think uh, when we're talking about how Africans are being treated in China, we can't talk in absolute terms because as Omar has pointed out, you know there are levels to the Chinese African engagement, right? So I'm sure African diplomats are being treated really well in China. African uh, diplomats' children are probably being treated very well in China. The uh, buildings or the areas that are being targeted, now, no one's really um, done any sort of in-depth analysis of them, but I could hazard a guess and I could say it's probably, uh, you know, the traders that go to China for a short time, stay there for a few months, and come, it's and and, and sorry, and go back to Africa. It seems um, it it can even be a socio-economic issue, you know. It's people that are placed on a certain, uh, you know, I, I don't say they're poor people, but they're not the richest of or the wealthiest Africans in China. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, uh, I think. Um, Mutabazi is the one who said this Richard said um, the Chinese are not doing anything about, about this but I think the other thing you have to realise is that the Chinese are we talking about the Chinese people or the Chinese government because the Chinese government might uh, you know want to keep building this China-Africa relationship because they realise what they get from it but the Chinese people do not understand the whole point of this uh chinese african uh relationship obviously when there's a there's a chinese african relationship so on a macro level now on a micro level do the people on the streets who are fighting these africans your local police officer they don't see the bigger picture so i think that's the other problem with what's going on in china now um i think that um the chinese could probably do more um and and uh you know that's there's a lot that can be said about that, but i think um yeah, like you pointed out uh, it it happens that a lot of the people that are in um are in uh, china and are going through this are Nigerian because there's a lot of Nigerians there, and um yes, African countries need to come together but then uh like Omar pointed out we, when these countries are beggars. Just how much clout do they have? Can they even start, um, you know, making demands against the Chinese government? I don't know. And I don't even think so. Because, uh, for example, in Kenya, when uh, this issue about Africans being mistreated came out, uh, there was something else that was happening with the Kenyan. There's a big group of Kenyan students that are in Wuhan where this uh, um, pandemic started. They had been sent there uh, for university. And when this whole thing started, the Kenyan government told them to stay there. It wasn't going to evacuate them. And uh, the Kenyan government after that has gone ahead and has always supported everything that the Chinese government has said. So up until now, this is four or five months later, these Kenyans are still stuck in China, in Wuhan, not even another area of China where things are better, but literally in the epicenter of this. So taking that as an example, I don't think um, African countries will do much.
3: Let me end this podcast with Omar. Give us some comments on whether China differs from the West in the way they give aid.
1: Yeah, I think when you look at the two relationships, uh, one can see where China is in terms of development aid and multilateral partnership. Uh, and also to a larger extent, bilateral partnerships where the West was uh, post colonial Africa, which is in the late 50s, moving down to the early 70s, where countries were just given uh, uh, tranches of cash and they basically um, uh, decided on how these funds were disposed and spent, while uh, the Western um, mode of of cash um, uh, dispenses onto Africans in the form of development aid has basically um, uh, gradually shifted to a more structured relationship, and the, the creation of the European Union, which is a big big partner in that sees a lot of funds with the Western countries going through the European Union, who are a very solid body. And they have very, very, um, very strict conditions in terms of what one can do to access those funds. So you would see that Africans are finding it easier to receive funds from China than these Western nations. So I think moving forward, Mm. uh, you would not see a lot of difference in that context in terms of where Africa's relationship was with China. Pre uh, pre COVID nineteen, which is uh, uh, the end of two thousand and nineteen, going back maybe the past decade since the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. Um, I don't think you would see much safety because um, the European and uh, U- the European nations through the European Union and the and the united states uh through the use of uh the multilateral institutions such as the world bank sorry
3: now i was just gonna say i i just actually picked up on something you said that as time goes on china would become more structured and have institutions that will run how their aid works
1: yes I think that is what they're using right now from a personal perspective. It's not because they don't have the institutional uh, capacity to, to, to do so, but is that they want to get Africans to look their way. And the only way that Africans to look their way is to relax their conditions so that it's easier to get money from China. And once that, that relationship is established, China then becomes a major partner in African in African development because you would see a lot of uh, government national development plans for three to five years to come. A, a lot of their funding sources are coming from these uh, these partners and primarily China. So maybe China also eventually would get there once they have a lot of a lot of their debt is held by. African nations then they become impossible to ignore and then what happens then is they will be on a very similar footing with the Western nations who have also employed a very similar a very similar a very similar strategy in the past where funds were just flowing you make a request I give it to you and once you carry a lot of my debt I become more structured, and then a much more stringent relationship develops. So I think China is heading towards that, but I think with the the COVID, that might be delayed by a few few years, probably by a decade.
3: With that, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with updates and analysis as many African countries continue to defy the odds. Until next time, bye for now.